0: Thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. If you came in late, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if you're visiting, a special welcome to you. Glad you guys are with us for for church today. Uh, Peter was saying uh, just a second ago, right now we're in Judges uh, for a sermon series. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that'd be great. I'll recap this here um, briefly. We're actually getting close to the end. We have five, I think, sermons left, including... Uh, today. So three in Samson and then a couple of weeks of like wrap-up that aren't about judges so much, uh, savior figures, but they're about what like life was like on the ground floor for the people of Israel during that time. And that's when it gets even worse than what it's been so far. So if you have been here, you know a little bit about judges. Things are just bad at this point and they paint just bleak pictures about humanity and particularly Israel at this point and the surrounding nations, uh, but us as well as we're microcosms or they're microcosms of our experience. That'll come up today as well. Uh, but things get even even worse and end, really, without any hope. Uh, as a book, <laughs> but in the greater scheme of things, Christ is, as we see Christ as the goal, all the hope in the world. So, uh, Judges is a book about redemption, basically. So much to say about it, but just in a word or sentence. That's basically what it is. It's about redemption. Redemption, biblically, means to buy back from slavery. So at this juncture in Israel's history, in biblical history, Israel from about 1400 to 1000 BC, this, this book covers was being given this land but in their sin they continually rebel and hurt people and kind of take on the religious practices of the surrounding nations which included child sacrifice and all kinds of unspeakable things towards themselves and other people and the surrounding nations too are extremely wicked and they're kind of serving as this thorn in the side to the people of Israel and the judges themselves are kind of circling the drain. I mean they're like themselves too they start out decent and their sins aren't you know, center stage, but as the book goes on, intentionally, narratively, they are exposed, they are listed out uh, in many ways, also the people of Israel, which will come up at the end of the book, like I was saying, but the judges too uh, become worse. And so the hope in that, as we said a few weeks ago, is that the judges can whisper hope, but what we really need, because they die too, is a good judge, a perfect judge, who lives forever, who, who doesn't die, and that's what we have in Christ. So really these stories then, it's judges plural because they're a collection of stories about God raising up judges, savior figures, not courtroom judges here, but like we think about them in English, but like tribal chieftains and savior figures to save Israel repeatedly from oppressive surrounding nations in spite of, as I was saying, in spite of their sin. And so theologically then, uh, this book, and I'll share this cheat sheet again with you by way of reminder or if you've seen this for the first time. Judges was never, like anything else in the Bible, never meant to be read on an island of meaning. So interpretationally, or the fancy word for that is hermeneutically, as we, as we approach this interpretationally with our own methodologies, asking the question, what does this mean for us? And especially as Christians in a different covenant, different part of the world, so far removed from this, the Bible itself says that these stories serve a purpose of telling a greater story. Like in a small way, it tells the story in this greater way. The story about Christ who would come later into the world to kind of complete these stories and fulfill them and, and kind of retell them in his own way but in a final declarative, I'm the final judge, I am destroying the ultimate oppressor, I'm bringing redemption at the highest level kind of way. So as we do that, as we read the Bible that way and the way that Jesus does himself and the New Testament authors do themselves, so in a biblical way we read the Bible, then we see that the judges here are actually whispers of Christ beforehand, even in their imperfection. And Israel and the surrounding nations are a microcosm of us. And and the judges themselves, too, as we were saying before. The other nations, too, being pictures of the ultimate oppressor that we need redemption from, sin and and death and demonic uh, presence and kind of control in the world and so forth, and ourselves, salvation from ourselves. Land and rest themes, which are cyclical here as well, which isn't so much in today's passage, but that comes up cyclically when the people have su- substantive rest in the land. Jesus talks about himself in those terms in, in the New Testament as being like land, as being like this place of rest for people. And, and we have a portion of him, like Israel had a portion of land in the Old Testament. We have a portion of Christ now, a share of him, like uh, John 13 says in, in the New Testament. So he speaks about himself in those terms, about this is what it means to be with God now, is to be with Christ and to believe in his grace and to rest under his work for us, his his death and resurrection. So, I say albeit crude here because there is more to say about Judges than than this and I hope you've been seeing that in this series and some things even will come up today that are a little bit outside of this, but this basically is how to read the book and it won't mean really anything to you or me if we don't approach it in this biblical manner as though it was always intending to be prophetic narrative. There's no primary moral lesson or something kind of to do with this book primarily other than uh, to see God's grace in it. And in that, there's things to do, to live in light of and to see ourselves as new creations and things too. But, so we'll talk about that, but it's uh, primarily about, uh, about Christ. In fact, this is a bit of a maxim here we use sometimes. If this is new for you, maybe this is helpful. The Bible is for us, but it's not about us. The Bible's for us, it's a gift given to us, but it's not primarily about us. And we can flip that around sometimes or kind of think that it's you know, more just the former, that it is about us primarily and we're kind of the, the main character or one of the main characters and, and it's for us in that regard. But actually, the way the Bible speaks about itself is the Bible's for us as a gift. God speaks to us through it, but it's not primarily about us. It's about Jesus. If you have that kind of approach to the Bible, you will get so much more out of it than you otherwise would. I guarantee it. Uh, and so I encourage you in that. And ask those questions today, too, as we just simply read through Judges 13. So today, Samson and his miraculous birth, uh, it's actually more about his parents today than him. He, he comes into the story by name, but um, the, uh, he's the last name judge of the book. So we'll spend three weeks on him, and then those final two weeks I talked about before. Today, though, is more about his parents, Manoah, and Manoah's wife, his mom, who's unnamed, but she's called Manoah's wife in, in the story. It's the, the birth narrative of Samson, which is quite miraculous. So let's read it in full. Judges 13, 1 to 25, skipping over a couple verses in the middle, you'll see as we go, but let's start reading here. So, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but... You shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Skipping down now to verse 15, Manoah himself then talked with the angel, and, and it says, Manoah then said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. Then, or the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things, or announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanedan between Zerah and Eshtail. Okay, so a couple of big gospel themes I'm going to call it today. Basically, in summary here, some of you guys may have heard a bit about Samson, Peter, uh, said before, even people that are kind of peripherally familiar with the Bible have heard of this really strong guy that shouldn't have cut his hair, but, but he did or got cut when he was sleeping and then he lost all his strength and, and all this stuff. If you have, this is the guy. So this is Samson. Uh, he takes a, a few chapters, like three or four chapters in, judge, in Judges so he's, we, we learn more about him and he's the only judge we learn about his birth. So this is a very significant chapter actually, not to skip over when you're reading about Samson. The Bible takes care to record these things in a particular way that help tell the greater story about Christ, as we were talking about before. The angel of the Lord, to be clear, you can kind of get a picture for this later in in, in the passage. Spence talked about this a few weeks ago with Gideon, because he appears to Gideon too. But the angel of the Lord is not just an angel, but probably a pre-incarnate Christ, or what we call a Christophany here, because he's being worshipped and called God, and saying, I won't tell you my name, and seeing it's wonderful, why do you ask it? These things sound like God elsewhere in the Bible too, and so... He's not an angel when worshiped elsewhere in the Bible. They say, don't worship me. Uh, I'm I'm a created being like you. Worship God. That happens elsewhere. But with the angel of the Lord, it's different. When when he's worshiped, he accepts it. And and so this is is God himself, or we might say before he was Jesus of Nazareth, this is the son of God uh, looking angelic before Manoah and his wife. So if that's unclear... Two big gospel themes though today, this theme of barrenness, and then we'll come back to the the place of sacrifice, the mediatorial role of sacrifice a little little bit later later on, they they relate. But first, this really big theme, barrenness, and I'll say here, barrenness, then birth. That's basically what's happening is God chooses this woman uh, to bear Samson, uh, Israel's final named judge, and specifically a barren woman, and then he heals her. So, but one thing before we get into this, I just want to start by acknowledging, in the big picture, I think the Bible does do this. It's you know not like laser focused clear, but at least indirectly, is start by acknowledging in the big picture that I know barrenness is an issue for many of you here, or some of you, or it was. It's not anymore, maybe, but it was, or it will be. And, and I think that there's encouragement for you here in this passage, again, at least implicitly, on a couple of initial levels. One. Clearly, even biblically, you're not alone. You're not alone here in this church, but, but also just kind of the grand scheme of humanity. Many other women have, and, and husbands who mourn with their wives, have walked this path. So, so one, you're not alone. Two, as it says here and shows, God sees you and he cares for you. It, it really is that simple and that profound at the same time. He didn't have to write barren women into his story, but he did. And he's kind to her. Like we see this right away how the angel of the Lord shows up and speaks to her and and her husband. And it's not based on their goodness. Remember that Manoah and, and his wife are part of the problem. When it says that all of Israel was doing evil in the sight of the Lord, that includes them. They're the reason why the Philistines are there causing problems and oppressing them. And yet, God still shows up and mends to their broken hearts and heals her barrenness and their infertility issues. And he speak, just speaks to them. And this is God. You know, and so the, the point here is not to say or anywhere else that, that God intends to heal all forms of physical barrenness in this life necessarily. But rather to point to his obvious care for the brokenhearted. And, and maybe for some of you that have read the Old Testament or many of the Psalms, like a hundred Psalms come to mind when I say that. Because God is clear poetically. He is the God by name of the brokenhearted. This is how he names himself. He's a God of the brokenhearted. If if you're a Christian with a broken heart, he he calls himself his God kind of with you in his name. Isn't that amazing? He's your God. And he knows you and he sees you and he cares for you and he he, he moves towards you. So it's not not to say that, oh, we're all going to have this experience like Manoah's, Manoah's wife, but rather to point to his obvious care for These types of people like like us. This is what he's like. God is like this. So, if part of what you came in the room this morning with, in terms of like a definition of God, doesn't include kindness, doesn't include care for the brokenhearted, then it's incomplete. And it needs to include these, these things. So, they're here at least basically, before we even get into this passage, just for that, that this is what he's like. So, if you don't know what God is like, and no one really does perfectly, but He chooses to reveal himself and say this is what I am like to people who have no clue, no clue or bad definitions about what he is. Maybe you came in the room or at one point in your life you thought he was the opposite of this because of some experience you had in the church or some jerk Christian who reflected him poorly or a a, a bad husband or something or whatever or um, or, like a past experience or just a misreading of something scripturally. But what God's saying here is this is partly what I'm like and he reveals himself accordingly. So now, now widening out a bit biblically, many of you might know, this is a predominant theme in the Bible, uh, the the theme of barrenness. So think of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel in Genesis. Think of Manoah's wife here, Hannah in 1 Samuel, and then in the New Testament, Elizabeth, who's John the Baptist's mom, in Luke 1. All of them are these women chosen by God in various kind of states of infertility and barrenness or extreme old age or way past the age of childbearing and God says, you're going to have a son or you're going to have a child. And um, through that line or in the spirit of of this miracle, theologically, my son will come. And so we'll talk more about that in a sec. But that's partly the question is we ask the question here, like it says, why the pervasive theme? Whenever you see it, even if just all we had is Manoah's wife, we would ask it, but especially the repeated theme here, why? Why? Why is this repeated? Why is it a predominant theme? Or how does this seem to serve a great, greater gospel purpose in the storyline? And, and I've got two reasons. I have kind of three things today, but the third one's kind of different, so I kept it off. But hopefully, for the clarity's sake, here are two things. One is the existential reason. The second is the grace reason. So first, existential, meaning just pertaining to our existence or experience. Um, these women are microcosms of the human heart. Spiritually speaking, uh, lifeless. Because, you know, barrenness is akin to lifelessness in the womb, right? So th- this is the key. When God heals barrenness repeatedly in the Bible and chooses to work through those women and families, when God heals and records these healings so much biblically, what purpose it serves is it points ahead in this story when he would do this on the highest of levels, and that is when he would raise the dead. And in that way, heal lifelessness. If you've ever wondered you know where the theme of resurrection is in the Old Testament, you're asking a great question. Jesus basically poses this in the New Testament, he, and he points to things or it implies that he's like opening the Old Testament with the two, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and saying, look, my resurrection, before that my sufferings, are all over the Old Testament. But it's kind of unclear as to where the resurrection is. And there are more clear places than this, but this is on the list of This is where the resurrection is prophesied about and anticipated. Barrenness, lifelessness, being overcome. Life coming from non-life. Really. And so, Isaiah 54.1, to pull from a few things, actually there's just this, in terms of other prophecies. Isaiah was a man who was a prophet. God spoke through him. This comes later in the Old Testament. But God says, "Sing, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, Break forth in singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the barren one or desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So essentially, a time is coming when life will come from non-life, and the dead will be raised. And we know the resurrection's the goal of prophecy in Judges thirteen for many reasons. One of which is not all barren women or infertile couples are healed in the Old Testament. In fact, fact, very few are. If you look at that list of names, you can look at that and say, that's a lot of people. In one sense, thematically, it is. It's predominant. But in a lot lot of ways, it didn't happen, you know, for for most. And think about Jesus' ministry. Did Jesus ever heal a barren woman? He doesn't, physically. But then you could back up and say, spiritually, he kind of does. Spiritually, when he dies for sinners, when he addresses the hard issue, when he addresses the disease, not just a symptom, but the disease. When he rises from dead himself and invites people into that experience. When he, when he gives hope for the dead, he does. When he rises in victory over death, he addresses barrenness on a much more cosmic, comprehensive, spiritual level. And that's the point. All these things in the Old Testament are symptomatic. Not that he can't keep doing that physically today, and he does. For some of you, He has. He's worked miraculously and answered prayers on this level so let's keep praying and trusting God for that but we have to kind of back up here and see that it's not um, it's not the main thing it is um, it's a thing so then uh, the, the the first reason is the existential one the second one is what I'm calling the grace reason and it's um, it is related uh, but it's uh, it's also a little bit a little bit different so What I mean by this is barrenness is impossible to overcome ourselves. This is at least implied in the biblical storyline. You could say, well, sometimes it just goes away. But, you know, I think implied is God is always one that allows for that. So, barrenness, when it's overcome, must be a sign of God working. It must be a miracle and must be a sign of God's grace. Grace meaning not just kindness, but something that stands in stark contrast to human effort. In fact, in in Galatians 4 in the New Testament, theologizing about these things, this is just a little snippet in context here, but Paul the Apostle says, looking way back to Genesis, Abraham, the patriarch, the one that God made initial promises to to save the world, had two sons. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, which looks like works or human effort, while the son of the free woman, his wife, Sarah, was born through promise. It was completely a miracle. It was given to his wife, who was 95-plus, barren, not able to have kids. But God said, you will have kids. And, and so, or to, to put it another way, one was produced the natural way through a non-barren, fertile woman. And that looked like human effort. Or Paul, what he's saying here is he's saying that reflects this idea of the Old Testament way of thinking by law or by human effort or, or works. But the other son, Isaac, was produced miraculously through an old barren woman, his wife, Sarah. And that was given by grace. So, so he contrasts these two things kind of by a way of talking about barrenness. And this is one of the reasons why he works this way. He wants us to see that it's by grace we're saved. Not through human effort, making a choice to have a child, fertile people, but working through an infertile couple and miraculously allowing it regardless to say that it's about God overcoming rather than, rather than humans achieving. So the big so what to this then, I was kind of saying this already, but the big so what in, in Galatians 4, and Judges 13 plays a part in this, is that Jesus would genealogically and theologically come from the line of God doing everything and humans doing nothing. And not from the line of human effort. Jesus did not come from the genealogical or theological line of Abraham saying, I will produce with my effort this child so that God can work and bless the world. But instead, the line of God just allowed this 95-year-old barren woman, never had kids, to just all of a sudden have a kid, to miraculously conceive. And it was through that woman that Jesus came to, again, undergird this idea of grace. Manoah's wife's experience then continues this story and is really all of our experience in the gospel. Like, like the angel says here, one of the more significant things you see in this whole passage is when the angel says, Look, behold, you are barren, but you shall conceive. Theologically, that is the exact same thing as saying, Behold, you are dead and lifeless, but in Christ I have made you alive. Think of Ephesians 4. You're dead in your sins, then verse 4 begins with a but, but God made you alive. It's the same thing, spiritually speaking. It's the same thing theologically and it's the trajectory towards which all of these barren women stories are pointing. And and it's, you know, these stories then, you guys, exist for us. Whether you're barren or not, married or not, childless or not, these stories exist for us then in a greater level. They're they're here for us when we doubt his love or wrestle with sin or fear. It's, It's the greatest of all scandals. God, the essence of light and love, the holiest of beings, creator of the universe, showing kindness to people who do evil, and just allowing life to come into dead spiritual corpses. That's what he's done for you and for me, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> That's kind of the, you know, the, the poking but sort of good news to this is even with our bad theology and our, and our failure to grasp this, God is saying, oh, actually, this is what's happened behind the curtains of you coming to know me. I've loved you more than held out a carrot for you to find and chase. I've come 100% your way to love you by dying for you. And in that way to heal your inner wasteland of of spiritual barrenness. Another related reason we know this, this has a Christ-pointing dimension to it, is due to the similarities that this narrative, some of you guys may have seen this, that it has with uh, Jesus, the the birth narrative. And so just to compare this for a second, there's more to say, but in yellow, just kind of highlighted some similar things In both cases, an angel appears uh, to uh, the the mother of of the child and says, Behold, you will have a a son. You will conceive and bear a son. And then the so what is is similar to, like in Matthew 1 on the bottom here, for he will save his people from their sins is exactly linguistically alike. He will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And, And there's meant to be an overlap here to connect Samson and Jesus as Savior figures. That'll become a little bit more clear in future weeks. But also, for today's purposes, that we will see God's heart for working the impossible over and over and over again in the biblical storyline. Because virginity is an even bigger hurdle to overcome than barrenness, right? Jesus' mom was a virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit inside a woman. But her betrothed, her... her, uh, What's the name again? We don't say betrothed anymore. Uh, fiance, thank you. Look, I'm sounding archaic here. Uh, his, his, um, yeah, her, her fiance, Joseph, they, they weren't married. They hadn't, uh, there's, there's no consummation of the marriage. She was a virgin. And that's when, she, that's when she conceived. It sounds a lot like these stories of barren women beforehand. A lot like Sarah, especially, but, but also Manoah's wife. God overcame virginity with Mary, and again, barrenness, so that no one may boast or lay claim to helping bring salvation into the world or into their own hearts. So Joseph, Mary's fiancé, couldn't boast and say, you're welcome, world. You know? He had nothing to say because there's no consummation. They hadn't had sex yet. So God God circumvented Joseph just like he circumvents you in all of your moral efforts, in everything good you've done in your life, in all of your you know, shining moments as a person, loving people well. He goes around it, not through it, to show that it's by his love that you're saved, not by what you do. This is why the Virgin birth is not just a miracle, it's good news. The doctrine itself is not just, oh, it's miraculous that God worked that way, isn't that amazing? It is. The doctrine itself is the gospel. It is good news for us because if it didn't happen this way, then Joseph had something to do with it, which means we could more easily assert that we have something to do with our salvation. And that's terrible news. The virgin birth is just another way for God to say to us, watch me work for you, my child. I love you. And watch me show that for you when I die for you. It's just another way amongst the thousands of ways in the Bible for him to say, I want to lavish my grace upon you. Stop working so hard, or like Peter at that Last Supper, um, you know, wanting to wash Jesus's feet. Let me wash your feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, "No, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me. We don't wash Jesus's feet. Jesus washes ours." So we could more easily assert that in the version Birth. Then you know, at the end of the day, it becomes this this gospel pointing, this gospel pointing thing. So all of this is the goal. Uh, you know, it, it's not not a fool's hope that. Maybe our physical barrenness might be overcome. You know, and I say fool's hope there, not that we can't hope for that and, you know, and pray. And for, again, for a lot of you, this, is, this has been healed. Like, we've prayed and we've seen people in our church overcome years of infertility. Uh, the miraculous has happened here. And so we need, need to acknowledge that. But, but please hear me say this. Kids are not your ultimate hope. Kids are not your ultimate hope. I'm saying this to all of you. Your parents are like, yeah. You know, but kids—kids <laughs> kids make terrible gods. Terrible gods; they cannot save you. They will not always be there for you. They won't serve you. They—they uh, um, they won't love you in the way you know the parents should love them more, right? So, um, whatever. I'm forgetting a bunch of stuff here, but—but but they make terrible. They don't put your hope in kids. Don't put your hope in having kids. Kids are not your ultimate hope. Health is not your ultimate hope. Happiness is not even your ultimate hope. Your ultimate hope is that God might finally make his way back to you after you abandon him and that death itself might not separate you from the love of God. That is your hope. That's the hope that God just hands us like a wonderful meal on a platter and says, eat this idea. Let me serve you. Let me wash your feet. Let me overcome your barrenness. Stop trying so hard. Believe in me and receive me, and you'll be called my son or daughter. So how else do we know this is the case in Judges 13? The second piece today uh, is, let me just recap this latter part. Really, it's a sacrifice that mediates sinner and God. Recap is, the angel says to Manoah, I won't eat your food, which is interesting. We'll come back to that. But make a sacrifice to the Lord. And so Manoah sacrifices a goat, and the angel goes up in the flame to heaven. And then it says this. Then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Okay, so this last part is extremely key. Narratively, you may have felt this actually as I read it in the first place. Narratively, it's like for at least momentarily, Samson and the Philistines take this huge back seat to this greater problem in the forefront, which is, we saw God, we're going to die. That's the immediate problem. We saw God, we're sinners, sinners who see God die. This happens elsewhere in the Bible. The holy and the sinful can't coexist. We've seen God, we're we're going to die. But then Manoah's wife just sort of uh, inserts this wisdom into the situation and, and says, the Lord didn't mean to kill us. Otherwise, what's the sacrifice and the birth announcement all about? In other words, she comes at this fear with good news. And, and, and here's the good news reworded. A sacrifice took place so that they could see God momentarily be with him and not die. This is the good news she, she brings into it. A sacrifice took place so that as sinners we could momentarily see God and not die. And fears addressed. What does that sound like to those of you who know the whole story? This, too, is the gospel beforehand. The, the birth narrative gives way to, in Judges 13, an atoning death. Just like in Jesus' case. He's born, and then later in this story, a sacrifice occurs. Not an animal sacrifice, the sacrifice of, of him, his body. He gave himself. And not just a death, but to pull from Judges 13 again, a death that was kind of, and bear with me, Nazarite vow-like. Some of you know what this is, some of you don't. The Nazarite vow is mentioned in Judges 13. You probably heard that, um, and it's referenced here. The Nazarite vow is something, just really briefly, definitionally, Numbers 6 talks about this in the Old Testament if you want to learn more. The Nazarite vow is essentially something men and women could do to dedicate their lives to God in the Old Testament for a time. that They could determine the time, they could start it and end it whenever they wanted to, but it was like this consecrated, dedicated time of service given to God. Now, two of the big marks of the vow, we see here in Judges 13, two of the big marks of the person taking the vow were, they were not to drink wine during the vow, or any fruit of the vine, it says, and they're to begin the vow with a special sacrifice. And this is why Jesus, right before his death, so it's kind of connect this with Christ. And the, and the hair thing's a big deal. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that whole hair thing with Samson. That is a part of it. They weren't to cut their hair during the vow. But Samson said, you know, he, he, the whole point here was that from birth, he was supposed to be a Nazarite. That's why his mom is not supposed to drink the wine. Manoah's wife's not becoming a Nazarite. The angel's are saying from birth, in, in the womb, he's going to be a Nazarite too. So from birth to death, He's going to make this vow, a special consecration and dedication to God, beginning with sacrifice, no wine, and the whole whole hair thing. But two of the biggest are the wine and the special sacrifice. So, to connect some dots here quickly, this is why Jesus, right before his death, said this, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is part of the Last Supper in all the Gospels. I think just synoptics actually, but at least more than Luke here, he's clear to say this, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. I will not have wine until the kingdom comes, which is not just Jesus saying, yeah, I'm about to go to work and I'm going to fast and I don't have time to eat. That is a part of it, but it's more than that because why didn't he say food here as well? So what Jesus is doing here is he's explicitly saying, kind of without saying it but still saying it, is I'm fulfilling the Nazarite vow idea in the way that I die. The idea being fully, have this full-blown dedication and consecration to God the Father, beginning the vow with a pledge not to drink wine and to give a sacrifice, but the sacrifice is himself. And the big so what to this is that Jesus' dedicated, consecrated, Nazarite vow-like work is in focus here. And this why these stories exist in the Old Testament. They might seem a little bit weird, not a place, and you might think, why aren't they in the New Testament? Actually, they are once. It's just right here. It's with Christ. But they're not for us to keep. So the Nazarite vow exists so that you and I might learn about a bit more of Jesus' resolve to save us. See, it's about Him making a promise, Him making a vow, Him going to work, Him fasting, Him suffering, Him abstaining, Him offering himself as a sacrifice. Not about you sacrificing. Not about you giving a gift to God. Not about you making a vow to God. Not about you and me making a promise to God. Not about you abstaining from wine. Drink wine to the glory of God if you want, or not, if you don't like it. But it's not about us. That's why you don't see it listed elsewhere in the New Testament as like a mark of Christian discipleship. Christ is becoming the ultimate Nazarite and the ultimate Samson, slaying the only Philistines that can truly harm us, sin and death right here. And it's his work, so that we might not be confused as though it's, a, it's up to us to save us. He's making the dedication. He's working hard. He's suffering so that we don't have to. So to try and put all this together, uh, it's hard to do. There's a lot of themes here that all relate, but they don't seem like they do. So just in one slide, on the left, all the themes from today, the theme of barrenness, barrenness being overcome, God's kindness, to the brokenhearted, Samson himself, and the mission he's called to, more on that next week, Samson's status as a Nazarite unto death, the mediatorial sacrifice in Judges 13 that prevents sinners from dying after they see God face to face, and even Jesus' birth announcement, the way it occurs, the virgin birth, and the way it's, uh, the angel speaks to them, all of that point to the one same thing. All of them exist for one purpose, and that is Jesus' death and resurrection which brings life from non-life, raises the dead, destroys sin, so sinners can see God's face again and not fear, but live with him forever. It points to, and the means by which he's going to do this, Jesus' sacrificial, Nazarite vow-like death and resurrection by his dedicated work to God, like the old Nazarites used to do, not our dedicated work for God. That's what this is saying. This even explains why, um, this could have been on the list too, but Why this all occurs. Why the angel says, I will not eat of your food. It's kind of a weird thing, right? Did you notice that in the story? Well, not going to do that. But you can sacrifice. The angel won't eat Manoah's food because no one feeds God. God feeds us. Just like no one saves themselves, but God saves us with the food of his body and blood shed for us at Calvary. See, he's the servant. It's, it's not ultimately about us serving God. Not that that language is always, uh, is like off limits. The Bible does use it. But it's way weighted towards God serving us. And so the way we think about even being a servant is, is like asterisked, if that's a word. Uh, aster, asterisked. We, we have an asterisk by it that says, you know, God served us first. God loved us first. God vowed to us first. And so that now it's about us eating the food that he has, he has to give. And um, this is why Jesus talks this way. You guys, if you read John's, go back and read John 6 sometimes, um, which Jesus talks in these terms where about, he's like, he says, in this moment where there's crowds surrounding him, it's almost like he wants to thin the crowd. You know? So he teaches this really sharp thing, which I don't know if there's a ministry principle there or not, maybe there is, but uh, it's like he wants to thin the crowd. And so he says, all of you who won't eat my body, and drink my blood, will never be saved. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, so all of a sudden he's like cannibal Jesus, and all these people are like, what in the world? And like half of them leave, and they never come back. It's too much. Part of it, weird, for sure. It's it's a metaphor, to be clear. It's the first time you're hearing that. The point isn't to actually do this, of course. It's it's just that the idea is we nourish ourselves on the crucifixion. This is why communion exists the way it does. It's it's representative of the body and and blood of Jesus, wine and bread. When we eat it, we're saying, the only thing that nourishes me is Jesus' work, not my good deeds before him. Because that's not bread and wine. That's not eating Jesus' body. You know, you doing good things in your life, how is that Jesus' body? You know, we have to eat the gospel, eat the fact that God sent his son to die for us and nourish ourselves on it and centralize it so much, where we're saying nothing else ultimately matters. There's other things that matter, but ultimately, no, not a chance. Nothing will challenge that. And so that so that's the goal. Uh, and, um, and and to try to put all this together, then I think that chart starts to get at it. But but I think I want us to see that all of these things are different ways of saying the same thing. That's one way to look at it. All these things are different ways of saying the same thing. And they exist then not, they're for us, but not about us. You guys see how that's the case here too? They're, they're for us. They're a gift of God for us, these stories and truths and themes and gospels and all of that. But they're not about us. You're not in the story. Uh, you know, it may, maybe like we're kind of like Manoah's wife in a way, right? There's a, they're a microcosm of us, but we're not really the main players. This is more about Jesus much more about him and his grace than, than, than about us. So, in conclusion, there's lots to say. Um, here's what I think is, is the biggest thing, though. I think this is a passage about hope hope for lots of people the, the barren, the infertile, the childless, the brokenhearted, the nameless, the sinner, and the dead. God is stronger than all of those things. And here's the invitation. Do you believe that today? Do you believe he's stronger than all of it? And do you believe that he showed that strength actually through weakness when he became weak to die among criminals for you for you and me? I think that we should read Judges 13 and passages like it and say, God is going to do something. I think that's the, because everyone's passive, right, in this story. And um, I think one of those songs said, or was it Peter was saying? I kind of already forget what Peter you were saying. It changed my life, but I kind of forgot it already. Just kidding. But um, he said something, I think, about how baptism's passive. So you saw the baptisms. You can't baptize yourself. And that's why I think Jesus said, go and baptize others, because when we're baptized as Christians, someone else is doing it to say that we don't save ourselves. We don't baptize ourselves. We don't raise ourselves from the dead. It has to be done by an outside force that moves on dead things, breathes on them, and makes them alive. So the baptism of the sacrament itself tells us this every time we see it. When you see two people in the water, what you're seeing is the principle of grace over works. Grace not works, grace not works, grace not works. You're seeing it shouted, demonstrated, shown. And so that when the angel, I'm going to come back to this to, to end, when the angel says this, when God says this, Behold, you are barren and have born, not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This is, this is huge. This is how it preaches to us. You know, he, he doesn't say, um, you know, behold, you are fertile, so don't give up. Keep trying harder. You're actually fertile, but you haven't quite made it work yet, so get back in the saddle, so to speak, and try harder. doesn't say that. But rather, you are barren, And I I think, I don't know if you guys, yeah. This is what I, this is reading it a little bit, but this is what I think is going on with Manoah's wife. Like she hears this, behold, you're barren, and she's thinking, I know. Like you don't have to tell me I'm barren. I've been struggling with this for decades. Why are you rubbing it in? But she had to know. Just like you and I have to know we're sinners. God in love tells us we're dead. God in love exposes our need, right? If we don't know that first part, we not like, want or feel like we need the second part. This is the whole Bible in a verse tucked deep away into the, like, dark recesses of these terrible narratives in Judges 13. This is the gospel, the whole storyline. You're a sinner, but God's going to make you alive anyway. You've done nothing to deserve eternal life, but God's going to make you alive anyway. How? Through Jesus Christ and his work. That's the whole thing. And the whole passage gets at this idea, as we saw before. All kinds of themes point to it, but this is how it preaches. And so, do we believe it? Do you bristle at the idea of being a sinner? Do you believe it even? Manoah's wife knew she was barren. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know that you've rejected God way more than you ever thought thought was humanly possible? Do you believe you're the biggest problem in your life? Or do you think the biggest problem is way out there somewhere? and you're raging against some kind of injustice in the world, but you don't think that in here is the biggest problem that you'll ever face. You're the biggest problem. I'm my own biggest problem because of my sin, because of my pride, because of my all kinds of sins. Like, I'm just dead. My my inner death is my biggest problem. My propensity to not even care that God's there, to not pray. You know, even even to do good things thinking I did it. So having the wrong motive for doing good, that's just as bad as anything. That's why Christ partly died, was not just to save you from bad things, but to save you from good things that you did without faith. As though you did them and not God. So anyway, it's another sermon. But behold, you're barren and have not borne children. Behold, you're sinful and dead. And you haven't borne anything good out of your heart ever. But you shall conceive and bear fruit. You shall conceive spiritually, so to speak, And like John 17 says, Jesus says, you will bear fruit. In other words, life will come from you. I'm going to start over. God's going to remake all creation, and he's doing doing that. The agent of that, like we read earlier in John 1, the agent of the new creation is Jesus' death and resurrection. So put your make-a-meal-for-God mentality away or there's-something-I-can-give-God mentality away. And instead, this passage calls to us and says, be reconciled to God through the given sacrifice of Jesus' body every day and today. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this passage the gospel according to Judges 13. Thank you that it's there. Thank you that a story like this actually makes it quite clear that the only way to be saved is if, is if you do something. And later it gets even more clear, because at that point, at that juncture, there's still a lot of question marks. But all the question marks are erased when Jesus is born, when he starts to speak and minister, when he starts to heal, and ultimately when he went to that cross to be weak so that we could become strong, to die so that we might live, to take on all of our curses so that we might be blessed. God, that, that is the fulfillment of all this stuff. And so help us, God, to understand that, um, reveal that more to us that we might actually understand it, but then to move from understanding to receiving right now, because the question is, wherever we're at spiritually, do we believe that Jesus is the completion of this story? Do we believe that he came into the world? Do we believe we're passive when it comes to salvation? Do we believe that God did good for us, that he took the vow, he promised to save us, so we never promise anything to God, because we can't keep our promises. We're too sinful for that. We rest in God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. We marvel, kind of like Manoah and Manoah's wife in this passage are watching. It said they watch the sacrifice. That's what we do. We watch the sacrifice of Christ. We gaze at it. We marvel at it. So help us to marvel all the more, to be changed by marveling, and then to live in light of the love we've first been shown. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together with these songs.